0: This week we're looking at the nuclear war novel Brother in the Land by Robert Swindles and we're not going to discuss the book's merits. Instead, we're going to lift the references to nuclear war from the story and discuss how realistic they were. Of course, a novel doesn't have to be realistic. We're just using the book as an excuse, I suppose, for looking at some aspects of nuclear attack and nuclear war planning. For example, in the novel... After the nuclear bomb has dropped, the character Danny describes a hideous black rain which falls on him. So, is that real? Does a nuclear bomb produce black rain? And why did Danny's father wrap his mother's body up like a parcel? Were we told to do such things? And would the sick and the dying be properly cared for after a nuclear war? Would the roads have been blocked off? Would soldiers have had the authority to shoot us? This novel, despite being quite short and classed as teenage fiction or young adult fiction, is actually quite powerful and jam-packed with horrible, frightening and quite realistic references to nuclear attack and how we prepared for it. Let me also say that this episode is dedicated to the pupils of Class 8 at Eller Carr School, who've been reading Brother in the Land with their teacher, Mrs Hindle. I think novels are an excellent way to get interested in history. I think of them as a kind of springboard into a topic. Um, I I suppose a historical topic to a young person might seem quite daunting, such as, you know, the war or some distant period of history. It might seem quite too enormous and maybe a bit gloomy, a bit massive, a bit difficult to penetrate how do you get into that and that's where I think a novel can act as your way in it can illuminate this period of history and once you've got your little foothold in it you can then do the proper historical work you can then read history books or read non-fiction books about it but the novel can be your way into the subject and that's how I got interested in history at school. I didn't like it at school at all. It was very dry and very dull. Of course, that was the teacher's fault. The teacher delivered it in a very dry, dull way. Um, for example, we spent a whole term talking about the Weimar Republic. But the teacher, Mrs Smith, didn't actually tell us what the Weimar Republic was. She assumed that we all knew. Uh, I didn't know what it was. And of course, in these days, there was no Google. You couldn't just quickly tap it into the internet and find out what the Weimar Republic was. The only way, really, to find out, without doing lots of research, would be to ask the teacher. But I was far too shy to put my hand up in the class and say, Whoa, 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 Mrs Smith, wait, wait, wait. What's the Weimar Republic? So I just sat there letting her talk about it without even knowing what it was. So no, I I found history very dull at school. My interest in history, and I went on to study history at university and get a history degree, my interest in it at school came from English. My English teacher, not my history teacher. It was my brilliant English teacher, Miss McCluskey, who got me interested in the Second World War through novels. The class read a novel, a young adult novel called Friedrich, which is about a Jewish boy in Berlin in the 30s. And then she told us to go off and do some more reading. And so she suggested other novels about the Second World War. And she gave me Sophie's Choice by William Styron, which, of course, is absolutely brilliant. And after reading that, I was hooked. I was obsessed. I had to find out more. She also suggested to me Miwa 18 by Leon Uris, which is about the Warsaw Ghetto. So after reading those two books, those two novels... I just had to go to to my local library, Rutherglen Library, and find out more about it. But I can't imagine having that thirst and that desperation to learn more about it without having read those novels, first of all. They illuminated the whole subject for me. Without them, the whole topic of the war or the holocaust would have been too big for me. So English and novels did far more for my love of history than history ever did. So hooray for novels and good teachers. Of course, if the pupils at LR Carr are listening and want to read more novels about nuclear war, which are aimed at a young adult audience, then of course they might want to try Z for Zachariah. Or, of course, the very famous When the Wind Blows, which is a graphic novel, or a comic as I would call it. But I keep being told off by my husband who's serious about these things. It's a graphic novel, it's not a comic. So I would suggest When the Wind Blows, or Z for Zachariah, if you want to learn more about it. Or do what I was never brave enough to do and ask your teacher. Put your hand up, I was too shy at school. If I'd said, Miss, what on earth does this mean? I might have learned more, but I was too shy. Ask your teacher. Find out more. Grab all the books you can. But for now, let's look at what Brother in the Land by Robert Swindles tells us about nuclear war. start with the black rain. In the novel, after the bomb drops, there is a lull, and then some heavy rain begins to fall. Big, fat, warm raindrops, and Danny, our main character, runs back into his shelter up on the moors because he knows that this rain is poisonous. And yes, this is quite accurate. After Hiroshima and Nagasaki... A horrible black rain fell on the cities, and this was a warm rain which was pulling soot and fallout down with it. In accounts of the nuclear bombing, we often read of survivors who were glad of this sudden rain, as it perhaps soothed their burns or slaked their terrible thirst. But of course, the rain was poisoned as it was dragging down all the filth and soot which had been thrown up into the atmosphere by the bomb, and of course had become radioactive. And now the heavy rain is pulling it back down to earth. It was black, tainted rain. Indeed, the Peace Museum in Hiroshima contains a shirt from one of the bombing victims, which is smudged and streaked with the stains of this horrible black rain. If we turn to the book To Hell and Back by Charles Pellegrino, which is a very vivid account of the bombing of Hiroshima, using lots of victim uh, testimony, although it does contain a lot of purple prose, he describes the black rain. I'll read you a small extract from it here. For several minutes, the two friends had forgotten about their thirst and were able to keep it at bay but now the strange fever had returned and seemed to be calling back payment of their borrowed time with interest. Yep, you can see what I've said about purple prose. Which was why they began to drink the rain. Some of the raindrops were as large as grapes, so large and falling with such force that they stung when they pounded down on Akiko's face. But she and Asami turned their faces towards the sky and drank the rain anyway opening their mouths as wide as possible. When she looked down at her arms, Akiko realised that the water was staining her skin black. The rain was as dark and repulsive as crude oil. But the two young women's thirst was so great that they continued to drink. When the rain subsides, Danny emerges from his shelter and decides to grab his bike and try to make it home. Maybe his house is still standing. Maybe mum and dad and Ben are okay. He thinks there's no point staying up on the moor worrying about fallout because he's already soaked by the black rain. So he figures whoever is out there in the air, in the rain, has got me already, so I may as well try and get home. But he's stopped on the moorland road by some tough-looking dudes in army gear. They order him to get off the road as it's an ESR. Civilians must remain where they are, says one of them. So what does this mean? ESR means essential service route. And again, this is totally accurate. The main concern of the authorities after a nuclear war, or at least one of their main concerns, would be to keep the population quiet. They want us at home, looking after our own injured so that we're not a drain on the health authorities, They want us at home dining on our own careful stockpile of tinned goods so that we're not making claims on the government stockpiles. And, crucially, they want us at home so that we won't be clogging up the roads trying to escape. The advice from the 1980s in particular was stay in your own home. And they offered us reasons for this, such as the mildly threatening, if you leave and head to another area of the country, People won't know you, and the authorities there will be under no obligation to house you. And if you do run, it means the local authorities in your own area can take your home and give it to someone else who's homeless. The advice was also that there's no point running, because fallout can spread anywhere and everywhere. You might want to run to the countryside, but be assured that fallout can be carried By the wind and can descend on the countryside. So, no part of the country is any safer than any other. And yes, I must begrudgingly admit, there is good common sense behind that. So, you may as well stay in your own home. But what the government didn't say is that we would like you to stay at home because that means you're not out there clogging up the roads and being a damn nuisance. The last thing the authorities want is everyone trying to run for it. Everyone out there causing gridlock, spreading hysteria, causing chaos. Stay at home where you are relatively under control. Here's a clip from the famous Protect and Survive government information campaign, which advises us all to stay at home.
1: If you leave your home, your local authority may take it over for homeless families. And if you move, the authorities in the new place will not help you with food, accommodation or other essentials. You are better off in your own home. Stay there.
0: To reinforce this, the authorities marked many of the country's motorways and main roads as essential service routes. And that meant that in the last days before a nuclear war, and of course afterwards, they'd be closed to civilians. Now, arguably, they'd be closed anyway after nuclear war, as they'd have melted or be buried under rubble. Nonetheless, many of our main roads would become essential service routes. And this meant they'd be forbidden to us if we tried to escape the cities either before or after nuclear war, they would be guarded by the authorities, leaving them clear for the army and the government to use, and therefore having the dual purpose of letting the authorities have free access to these roads, but also it helped control and contain the panicked population. See my episode called How to Run Away if you want more info on that. When Danny finally makes it down off the moor, he fights his way through scattered corpses and the rubble of the town to make his way home. And he's overjoyed to find his family are still alive. Ah, no, wait. Not everyone has made it. His mum has been killed. But, mercifully, poor Danny doesn't need to endure the horror of seeing his mum's corpse. Because Dad has neatly wrapped her up. Here's an extract from the book where Danny finds out that Mum is wrapped up and placed underneath the counter. You don't want to see her, lad. Think of her as she was. She's wrapped up anyway. This is his dad saying this to him. I gazed at him. Grey, stubbly face and pinkish eyes. Wrapped up? Aye. He wiped his palms on his coats and looked at the gutted houses across the road. It says in the booklet to wrap em up and tie a label on till they come to collect them. I had some polythene in the cellar, but I can't find anything to write with, so there's no label. I stared across at the counter. Who's coming, I whispered. Them at Kershaw Farm? He shook his head. I don't know, lad, he said, dully. It's been over a day already and I've not seen anyone. You can only do what it says and wait, can't you? I nodded, seeing the corpses on the hillside, wondering who'd wrap them up and stick the labels on. Of course, what they're referring to there when they say the booklet is the Protect and Survive booklet. Protect and Survive, again, my listeners probably know this already, but for the benefit of the pupils at Car, Protect and Survive was a government public information campaign from the early 1980s. It was in booklet form, but there were also short films which would have been broadcast on the BBC and on the radio in the run up to nuclear war and if you want you can find those short films on YouTube just search for Protect and Survive the films are broken down into short little clips each of which deals with a different aspect of the Protect and Survive instructions we heard one earlier of course talking about how you shouldn't try and flee you should stay in your own home But they also deal with what Danny's father is referring to here and that's the horrible instruction to wrap anyone up if they die in your shelter. So let's listen to another extract from the Protect and Survive films which tells us how to parcel and label our dead.
1: If anyone dies while you are kept in your fallout room, move the body to another room in the house label the body with name and address and cover it as tightly as possible in polythene, paper, sheets or blankets. Tie a second card to the covering. The radio will advise you what to do about taking the body away for burial. If however you have had a body in the house for more than five days and if it is safe to go outside, then you should bury the body for the time being in a trench or cover it with earth and mark the spot of the burial.
0: Of course, check out my previous episode called Disposal of the Dead, which was the first one I ever did, so it might sound a bit rough around the edges. But that has more detail on how we planned to deal with Millions and millions of corpses after nuclear war. Let's just say there'd be no point putting nice little labels on them. We find another interesting point in the book about burial of the nuclear dead, when we learn that the desperately sick and dying were all taken away in mysterious ambulances and were later shot up on the moors by the chaps at the sinister Kershaw Farm one witness who speaks of mass graves being dug with earth movers up on the moor. Well, if you listen to my Disposal of the Dead episode, I think I talk about how machinery would probably not be used to bury the dead after nuclear war. And that's because we would need to preserve fuel at all costs. And so it probably wouldn't be squandered on digging pits. Not when you've got lots of survivors who could be made to dig those pits for you. And yes, of course, that raises the immediate question of compulsion. You'd have to force survivors to do that horrible task. No one's going to be jumping out of bed and volunteering for mass grave duty, would they? No, probably not. But those in charge will, we assume, also have control of the food supply. And so if you want to eat, you will eventually have to knuckle down and obey orders. This um, desperation to preserve fuel... It also caught my attention when we read that Danny's family are using water to wash with. Now, that's a big no in terms of surviving after nuclear war. Clean water is going to be so scarce that you'd advised, at least in the initial period, not to use it for trivial things like washing. If you've got a limited supply of water, which you've, of course, stored and kept safe from any fallout dust, you're advised in protecting Survive to use it only for its most basic purpose, and that's drinking, and therefore keeping you alive. The idea of using a limited supply of water to bathe with, that seems like a very frivolous thing. If you're a bit grubby and stinky after a nuclear war, that doesn't matter. <laughs> Keep your water for drinking. Of course, in the novel's defence, the characters find uh, an underground spring or a well, so they have, in theory, limitless fresh water, but nonetheless it does seem... Very foolhardy to be using it to bathe with, at least until the dust has settled, quite literally. Don't waste it on frivolous things like bathing. Keep it only for drinking and for food preparation. There will be no post-nuclear bubble baths. There is still so much more to be discussed in this novel, so I'm going to split it into two episodes, and we'll talk about the rest next week. If you have any questions, remember you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, on Facebook under Nuclear Britain or through my website, juliemcdowell.com. Also, you can support the podcast with a donation each month on Patreon. Please take a look at patreon.com forward slash AtomicHobo. And let me say thank you to the following people who donate each month through Patreon. Dan Breen, Simon Robinson, Lissy D., Eric... Hallie Andrews, Chris Carini, Louie, Sally Everett Brick, Tom Allen, Paul Jonathan Viner, Everybody, Hack Green, Secret Nuclear Bunker, Gary Watson, Arika, Lucy Stegerwald, Laney Peterson, Andrew Skilton, Tony Newman, Ben Taylor, Jonathan Abilance, Messi Ventura, Heather Parker, Peter Mars, Craig Bushman, John Haynes, Tom Stickland, Yannick, Sam Marco, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milsen, Brian Outlaw, Damien Ryan, Peter Lee, Ian Whitaker, Rob Johnson, Oliver Wiles, Andre Russell, Julie Rose, Jonathan Fossard, Emma Nystrom, Ben Grabham, Ed Freshwater, Rosie Jamison, Ian Elkin, Eamon Coyle, Sarah Brassington, Nick Packham, Tara Moore, Simon Reed, Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCullough, Linda Woolnuff, Kevin Butcher, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell-Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, and Gordon McNair.